Ladies and gentlemen, this morning's topic is a rather small one. It's love. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Uh, there are any number of people, including my wife, Denise, who would probably be better equipped to talk about this this morning. But uh, Dr. Milliner roped me into it, and so here I am. Um, Dr. Milliner suggested uh, some weeks ago that it was important as we proceed in this discussion of the virtues to have good definitions. So with that in mind, I want to offer you uh, first, as we begin this, love in the dictionary. good evangelical Anglican, I am going to two sources uh, to uh, look at this a little bit further. I am going to the Holy Scriptures and to C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little book uh, some time ago called The Four Loves, in which he tried to uh, parse out what love means in various contexts. And he says at the beginning of the book, that when he initially started to write the book, he thought he would be dividing love into two categories. 
gift love and need love. And he suggested as he thought about need love that, uh, first of all, it might think that, seem that that's uh, a rather selfish, a rather small form of love, but he argues that it's not necessarily bad. After all, the Lord says in the first chapters of Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. And Lewis says, as he discusses this, that after all, if you consider it, our whole being is by its very nature one vast need. And Jesus himself addresses our need by saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, in addition to need love and gift love, Lewis also talks about appreciative love. And he says this about the three. Need love cries to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve or even to suffer <clears throat> for God. Appreciative love says, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Gift love longs to give her happiness, comfort, protection, if possible, wealth. Uh, appreciative love gazes and holds its breath and is silent, rejoices that such a wonder should even exist, even if not for him, will not be totally dejected by losing her, and would rather have it so than to never have seen her at all. Now, uh, Lewis has divided things into three. Uh, the Greeks did even better than that. They divided it into four. And uh, Lewis spends most of his book, The Four Loves, discussing these four forms. Uh, the first is called storge. And it means essentially affection, as in parents towards their children, children towards their parents, human beings towards their pets. And it's a love that uh, Lewis refers to as being humble and modest. Um, we then have another uh, love, which, like Storge, does not appear uh, by name in the New Testament, uh, but it's probably the word that most of our culture associates most readily with the word love, and that is eros. Um, as I mentioned, uh, it does not appear in the New Testament, but something interesting happens during this week of Easter. I have noticed as I've been using the uh, online lectionary that uh, we have posted on allsouls.com that uh, the Old Testament readings for this week immediately after Easter are all devoted to, of all things, the Song of Solomon. And when one thinks about it, there is something about Eros that's very clearly present uh, by its very nature in the scriptures. Uh, we think of the fact that in his very first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus blesses Eros with his presence at the wedding in Cana. He upholds the sanctity of the marriage bed as undefiled. And indeed, we are told throughout the New Testament that we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. Now, what it seems that Eros cannot be is God. Uh, many of you will know that uh, the word Eros is in fact the name 
of one of the Greek gods. And uh, he is uh, impassionate, uh, impulsive, uh, playful, uh, untrustworthy. He's all sorts of things uh, that can easily get out of hand. And Lewis quotes uh, the Swiss intellectual Denis de Rougemont as saying, love ceases to be a demon only when it ceases to be a god. And he continues by saying, Lewis does, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is therefore lawful and even meritorious. Uh, this is the kind of love uh, that we get uh, when we turn to the famous philosopher Woody Allen who said the heart wants what it wants. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that Lewis points out in his book is that we have a tendency in our culture to exalt Eros uh, far above uh, its actual position. We think of things like Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Uh, we think of any number of romantic movies. And one of the things that many of uh, these uh, cultural artifacts are not is uh, full of humor or full of uh, a sense of their own proportion. And Lewis suggests that one of the ways for us to avoid the evil of allowing Eros uh, to become a god and therefore a demon is to realize that there is much that is comic and game-like and playful in Eros. Uh, he writes, we are under no obligation at all to sing all of our love duets in the throbbing, world-without-end, heartbreaking manner of Tristan and Isolde. Let us often sing like Papageno and Papagena instead, uh, these foolish, clownish uh, country bumpkins who just stumble into each other and just have a riotously good time and loads and loads of children. Um, Lewis uh, says that it's not for nothing that Francis of Assisi referred to his body as brother ass. Uh, Lewis says ass is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. Uh, the fact that we have bodies is in fact the oldest joke there is. Uh, and you know this is a wonderful uh, balance to uh, what we often see of as Eros in our culture. Um, Lewis also mentions, and this, this is true of uh, most of the other loves as well, that there is, when one thinks of it, a curious mingling of love and hate in all of the natural loves. Uh, we can easily turn on the ones we love uh, the most closely the ones we are most erotically passionate for. And uh, it is very strange, but very much part of our condition that this is so. Um, one other uh, word for love before we get to the main one here uh, is phileo. 
Uh, this is a Greek word that does occur in the New Testament quite a few times, 10 of those times in the Gospel of John. And it is the word that we generally think of as being friendship. Um, Lewis uh, contrasts uh, phileo and eros by saying that lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. Uh, he also says the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship is about something. We become friends because we share a love in music or the Cubs or uh, some sort of politics or whatever it might be. And often, as Lewis says, we have the experience of meeting someone and discovering that they have an interest in the same thing that we do. And we say, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Uh, and it, it's this kind of thing. Uh, Lewis uh, refers to it also as companionship. Uh, he also invents the word clubbableness to describe it. And he ends up uh, going into a great deal of detail about the friendship between men. One can think very easily of the Inklings meeting at the Bird and Baby in Oxford. And uh, he actually ends up saying some rather chauvinist things that uh, we won't discuss this morning, but um, you can read it for yourselves. Um, as I mentioned, uh, phileo appears uh, a number of times in the New Testament. And just to give you a flavor of the kinds of contexts in which it is used, uh, it is used in Matthew 6 when Jesus says, the hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Um, he also uses it later on in Matthew when he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, phileo is also used in John. He who loves his life shall lose it. And uh, this, it is even used sometimes of our love for God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Uh, all of these things are used with phileo. But the word that shows up the most often in the New Testament to describe love, and the word which really is our word to think about the virtue of love, is the word agape, uh, which is rendered generally in Latin as caritas, sometimes in English as charity, uh, which has always seemed to me to be a rather lame word uh, given how we usually understand charity in, in uh, common culture. Um, this is a word that is used uh, no fewer than 108 times in the New Testament, 20 of them in First and Second Corinthians, 10 times in Ephesians, 14 times in First John. So it's a word uh, that is very closely associated with Paul, but also with John. Um, let's think about this word for a moment uh, for the rest of our time here. Um, it's very interesting to me that although many of the other virtues can be similarly uh, attached, agape is a virtue that is uniquely associated with God himself. 
It is something that is manifested by him. And it is indeed, to use uh, Lewis's earlier category, it is indeed gift love. Uh, we have just been through Easter. Uh, we have heard all about it, and we will continue to as Easter continues for the next few weeks. Uh, John, uh, in the, his first letter, chapter 4, says God is love, and he repeats that several more times in the same letter. Uh, Paul in Romans tells us that God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, it is a love that is strong. Uh, it is a love which, to use a parental cliche uh, or a professorial cliche, can sometimes be tough love. Uh, Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. It's agape love. Um, it is also a virtue that is very clearly a commandment. Uh, we are told two things in Matthew that uh, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And we are told that we shall love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, a number of interesting things here. First of all, it suggests, Jesus suggests very plainly, as does Moses before him, that love is something that is not merely a mushy, sentimental, emotional thing. Uh, we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Uh, everything in our entire being is to love him. And there is not a single part of us, uh, intellectual or uh, emotional or psychological or any other part, that is exempt from this command to love the Lord our God. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis says something uh, very interesting about this. He says, the rivalry between all natural loves and the love of God is something a Christian dare not forget. God is the great rival. God stands between us and every other thing we could possibly love, every other way in which we could possibly love. Um, and he also points out that loving God is really uh, the only way that we can find true satisfaction and true fulfillment at all. He says... Uh, all human beings pass away. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. Um, so it is the one thing in which we can count now and for eternity. Uh, when we think about the other command of these two great commands, Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Paul says in Romans, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It goes without saying, then, if we are to love our neighbor, and we remember who Jesus has told us is our neighbor, and that person is not the person that we would necessarily 
immediately assume is our neighbor and immediately want to treat as our neighbor, as in the, the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. But we are obviously called to love one another as Christians, as members of the body of Christ. First uh, John 3.16, interesting these 3.16s. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Uh, John 13.35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First uh, John 4.12, if we love one another, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Um, many of us of a certain age uh, were very uh, influenced at a certain point uh, by the, the Presbyterian writer and thinker Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer wrote a small essay at the end of one of his books called The Mark of the Christian, uh, which is a very important statement. It was then when he wrote it in the early 70s. I think it is now as well. And he suggests that if indeed love is the mark of the Christian, if indeed love is the sign that shows the world that uh, God is among us and that God's love is real, then the world has a right to doubt, to question whether God is real if it does not see love among the Christian brothers and sisters. It's a very powerful, very strong word, perhaps of indictment, but it's one that really tells us just how important, how crucial this virtue of love is, particularly as it needs to manifest itself within the church, uh, if indeed the church is going to have an impact on the fallen world as a whole. Um, here's an interesting one. Um, I had told you earlier that uh, phileo is the word that's used to describe love between parents and children, children and parents. It's actually agape that is the word used in this following passage from the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Husbands ought to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not just uh, like uh, ramped up a bit. It's not just aros, but it's indeed uh, this gift love that Christ gave us on the cross that is the love that Paul sees as being the love that husbands ought to have for their wives. Um, among other things, this is not just a virtue. It's not just a commandment. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and we are told several different things about it. Uh, we are told that we walk in love. Uh, we heard that wonderful passage uh, from Colossians last week. Uh, For you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. And if indeed we're, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, uh, we are in that love that is very much the essence of Christ. And when God is revealed, when Christ is revealed on the last day, we will be revealed 
in the totality of that love, among other things. Um, we not only walk in it, uh, but we put it on. It's uh, just as Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Love is one of those things that we put on. It's an exercise. It's an active thing. Uh, it's something that we don't merely fall into, as people do when fools fall in love, but it's something that we actively and deliberately and intentionally put on. And it's something that uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians is something that, uh, in which we are to be rooted and grounded. Um, Jesus tells us that we abide in his love if we keep his commandments. And uh, C.S. Lewis comments along the same lines, only those into which love himself has entered will ascend into love himself. Uh, love is very different uh, to us as believers who are putting on walking in agape than it is to the world. Now, um, just to demonstrate to you that agape is indeed something distinct in the scripture from phileo, uh, there's a very fascinating um, passage at the end of John's gospel, uh, which uses both words in contrast to each other. Uh, you will remember that uh, Jesus appears alongside uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he approaches Peter, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape. What does Peter respond? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo. Uh, Jesus asks him again, uh, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Lord, you know I phileo you. And then finally, Jesus asks the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Simon says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Feed my sheep. Uh, so it's a rather startling and a humbling moment when uh, Simon is being challenged as to the nature of his love. And he can't quite bring himself to use agape to respond to the Lord. And then the Lord comes down to his level and says, can you at least start here? Um, and uh, so it's a rather startling, uh, stunning moment uh, full of grace and truth, as John speaks of at the beginning of his gospel. Now, of course, um, if we're going to talk about agape at all, we've got to talk <coughs> about the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's a famous passage. It's usually read without much thinking at weddings and other places, but it's a very <laughs> profound uh, piece of, what is it? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Uh, it, it's, it's all sorts of things at once. And you all know it. Uh, let me just uh, read it for you uh, right here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. I want to make a few observations about this passage as I've been thinking about them the last few weeks. And then maybe open the floor to observations or thoughts or questions you all may have. Uh, Remember, my doctorate is not in psychology or philosophy or theology. Uh, It's certainly not in love. But uh, (laughs) we've got uh, a a lot of people here to to draw on. Um, It's very interesting to me just how many things are contrasted with love here. Uh, Paul says it's not the same as spiritual giftedness. You can speak in tongues. You can prophesy. You can do all of the things that he outlines in the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. And yet, if you have no love, uh, these things end up not being worth very much. (coughs) He also contrasts self-sacrifice with love. Uh, We think of people who give their all, who give up their bodies as martyrs, but... If it's not for love, if it's for some other reason, for self-glorification or out of pride, it's not worth much. Um, Paul also contrasts knowledge and love. Uh, This is the word uh, in Greek, gnosis, and he may have had in mind something rather specific, as in uh, the occult hidden wisdom of the Gnostics of his day, But uh, whether it be um, that kind of gnosis or the knowledge that we're all so proud of as college professors and others, uh, he still suggests that knowledge and love are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, Knowledge makes for arrogance, but love edifies. Uh, As I said before, uh, love is the one virtue that never ends. Uh, something that uh, was two things that Lewis says that I think are very important here. Um, This wonderful aphorism from uh, The Four Loves, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And then we find thus by experience that there is no good applying to heaven for earthly comfort. Heaven can give heavenly comfort, no other kind. And earth cannot give earthly comfort either. There is no earthly comfort in the long run. Uh, So here, this is the one permanent thing on which uh, we can rely. Uh, And then 
Finally, love is about a relationship. Uh, if it's about knowledge at all, it's about knowing God and being fully known by him. And uh, this is really uh, the root of perhaps the entire thing. Does anything else come to mind with any of you? Or any, any questions come up uh, based on what I've said so far? Any thoughts about what love is and how it's manifested? Yeah, Rich. I think that's true. Uh, you know, we think about uh, things that we hear very typically in the public square these days about, I believe in a God of love who would never condemn such and such behavior. Uh, you know, the church is called to be loving, uh, as if the world can tell us what to do. Uh, and, and, and you're right. Uh, you know, getting back to uh, Dr. Milliner's uh, edict from earlier on, definitions are important. And much that is love ends up in, in the world as we know it being mere sentimentality. And as Walker Percy points out in several of his books, uh, he equates sentimentality with cruelty, which uh, really shook me up the first time I read it in Walker Percy. But uh, the longer I'm around, the more I see that that's true that sentimentality can trap us in behaviors and, and uh, ways of thinking that are not for our good. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, Rich. Anybody else? Yeah. Wow, sentimentality is loving something more than God does, John Updike. That's really interesting. Yeah, I like that. Anybody else have any thoughts? That, uh, come? Yeah, Matt. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that's true here is this is something that everyone can do. It, it, is, it is not something that requires uh, a degree in theology. It doesn't require, uh, you know, long, serious philosophical cogitation. Uh, and, you know, many of the people we know 
who, I mean, if, if one thinks, say, even in this church, of people who we might all call exemplars of agape, of love, I think of someone like Nikki Holton, uh, who was one of the mothers of this church when it was first founded. And uh, the way she loved and continues to love everyone uh, is just a lesson that uh, St. Augustine th could learn from. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, this is not just for the elect. It's not for the chosen few who have gnosis. Uh, it is for everyone. Um, anybody else have anything to say? Uh, yeah, Gosha. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, if you love God, uh, you want to express that love and share that love at all times and all places, uh, which means including places where that love has not been experienced before. And uh, if who is my neighbor means uh, all sorts of unexpected people who you wouldn't necessarily associate with, you know, living next door to you then clearly it means uh, exactly what the Great Commission says it means. Yeah. I think it's like Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, anybody else have anything that they'd like to say? Yep. Just, you know, you mentioned that we're to love God most of all. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, 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 I mean, I, 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 I should have studied this on, on the wall before I left this morning. But um, yes, when, when Denise and I were married at uh, St. Mark's Geneva uh, back uh, in uh, October of uh, 1994, uh, the service began with my reciting from the front of the uh, sanctuary a prayer that I had found in the Oxford Book of Prayer. And it was a prayer uh, for a wedding, and I don't even remember who wrote it now, but it says uh, that, I, I mean, essentially, that I may love her, may I love you more than her, uh, that I may be ever with her, may I be ever with you. Uh, and it, it continues in that line for several lines. It's a very beautiful poem. and. Uh, I, if you had reminded me earlier, I would have brought it with us. But, uh, but, but uh, absolutely, yeah. And 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 it basically, basically underlines that that all of the other loves, uh, eros, phileos, storge, uh, all of them are really made possible. We love because he first loved us. Um, so Ryan. Did you yeah, I was just going to add. Based kind of going back to 
Yes. And he, he, he actually uses a very similar image in The Four Loves. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is a little bit like, I'm not quite sure why this is, but there is a phrase that is almost ubiquitous in common culture that just drives me crazy. I just hate it. Whenever I see somebody posting on Facebook that a friend or a relative has died, uh, somebody will post underneath, I'm sorry for your loss. And there's something about that that, that somehow rings so hollow to me. And, and it, it's, it, it's empathy without content. It's, it's maybe pretty close to sentimentality. Um, I, I don't know, but yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I want to, since we're getting close to uh, the uh, last ringing of the bell here, I want to end with another quote from uh, The Four Loves, which I find to be very, very powerful. Uh, and uh, it, it may be kind of a, a downer on which to end, but it really isn't. Um, and it's about love and vulnerability. Uh, Lewis writes this, and with this I'll close. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So go out, take risks, be vulnerable, love. Thank you all. <clears throat>